You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of crafting one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. Hi, my name is Grace Perry, and I wrote a book called The 2000s Made Me Gay. Grace Perry is a Chicago-bred, Los Angeles-based writer whose work has appeared all over the internet, including on BuzzFeed, The Cut, The New Yorker, The Onion, Reductress, and many more. Her debut book, The 2000s Made Me Gay, was released on St. Martin's Press in 2021. The 2000s Made Me Gay is a humor-driven essay collection that interweaves queer memoir and pop culture criticism. Subjects include how Taylor Swift's Fearless is a blueprint for U-Hauling, Seth Cohen as a lesbian role model, MTV's The Challenge on forming queer community, and much more. The impulse to write the book or kind of what became the book was the 10 year anniversary of I Kissed a Girl coming out. So that was in 2018. It came out at a time it was like the summer in between high school and college for me. I wasn't out of the closet. It was like song of the summer kind of thing. It was everywhere. And knowing I was queer kind of trying to push it away. It was this big thing that was just like, hello, hello, here's something you have to think about now that you don't want to think about. And to top it all off, really, the hook for me was that my grandma's name was Katy Perry, and she was alive at the time. She's since passed away. She's a true character, but it always felt like this sort of big cosmic thing, like the world was sort of playing a joke on me. Summer 2018, 10 years later, I was thinking about it a lot and sort of put an essay together on that topic. And then I looked at it and was like, oh, I can do this kind of thing with a bunch of different other pieces of pop culture. Here's kind of a snapshot of where I was in my coming out process when the song came out. Here is how it actually, I think, sort of kept me closeted longer than I think I might have. I mean, it's impossible to really say, but here are the specific ways in which this song had an impact on my psyche. And I was like, oh, I could do that kind of thing with the OC. I could do that kind of thing with Harry Potter, with Disney Channel movies, like all kinds of stuff. And that's really where the idea for the book came together. I had the idea of like, maybe that would be like a podcast series. And then I was like, I don't want to make a podcast. But I ended up kind of going through and, and thinking of what other pieces of pop culture entertainment that I could do that same sort of memoir-esque interrogation with. I don't know that I ever, even now, am sure that the book is complete in terms of its content. I still think of things that I'm like, oh, I think I probably could have written, maybe not a full essay on this, but I could have added this band into, you know, like I was listening to Dashboard Confessional recently and was like, why didn't I write about Dashboard Confessional? I should have done that, but that's okay. In terms of just like how the writing process went for me, it was the first half of 2019 that I was like developing the book proposal with my agent that I was like, okay, this is in shape to send out to editors. So in that proposal, I wrote three essays just as like samples because I had never written a book before. And my agent was like, well, you should kind of give maybe more examples of your writing than you would if you already had a book that came out that people might be familiar with. So I felt like I did a lot of essay writing just for the proposal. And then I submitted a version of the Katy Perry one and a version of Banter Boys, which is like OC, Dawson's Creek, Gossip Girl, and then a version of the Harry Potter one. Those were all in the proposal, but are all like totally different. The versions that are in the book are much different than the ones that were even in the proposal. I think by like June or July when it was ready, I don't think then I really had a sense like, yes, this is complete. I had more of a sense of like, I need someone else to think about this because I can't think about it anymore. 
I think that if I just had it in my court forever, I could just keep tinkering with it and keep adding things to it and keep changing it. At a certain point, I think, you know, a big part of this whole process for me was just learning how to let that go and learning how to be like, this is what it is right now. And at a certain point, you just have to let your writing be in the world and let people experience it and react to it in the ways that they're going to. I think I ended up getting the book deal in like August 2019. And then it came out in June 2021. The bulk of the writing was over fall 2019 into winter, spring 2020, which was a very challenging time for a bunch of different reasons, but that was kind of the timeline of it. Okay, the dirty details of my writing process. I am a total sleepy baby. Like I need so much sleep. I am fortunate that I don't have children at this point in my life and whatever. I get a lot of sleep. I feel like I'm at my creative best when I'm on, you know, cruising on like nine hours and a cup of coffee. So I do my best writing in the morning. I think that's something that I developed just from like doing artist way and getting into morning pages. And I think that I'm least judgmental of myself first thing in the morning. And I haven't had other people's voices in my head yet. You know, like it's just me and it's just the page. And it that's when I feel the most productive generally. But that said, like, This is something that I think I've explained to friends of mine who have like nine to five jobs is that I couldn't possibly write from nine to five. I can crank out a lot pretty quickly, but then I run out of steam. So I can do four or five hours is going to be my max of sitting down and getting like good stuff on paper. When I'm writing, I need to like get up and kind of walk around a lot. I have in this garage, this writing space I'm in, I have this balance board thing, this little like surfboard. And so I end up just like going on that a lot. At the end of the day, I'm usually just like so kind of like wired that I have to like go to the gym or do something to sort of get it out of me. I'm not a night owl. I really am not going to be able to work past 7 p.m. And I certainly am not going to be able to create anything good if I've had a sip of alcohol. Like immediately when I have a beer, I'm just like, I want to go to sleep. I want to hang out with my friends. I want to like not do anything that has to do with writing at all. And I'm like amazed by people. Like I've co-worked with people with other writer friends of mine who will just be drinking throughout the day. Not like a ton, but like have a beer or something like that in the afternoon. And I'm just like, my face would be on the floor, like not out of being wasted, but just out of no thanks. But when it came to writing this book, it was a really fast process in general. And I think particularly, I don't know, I was kind of like between it was like September to May, it was like really like a pregnancy, like I had to get this book out. So I was like, okay, this month, I'm going to focus on these two essays. May was when my like first draft was due, and then it was doing a bunch of edits. I had this whole plan kind of like breaking up, okay, I'm going to do these two essays this month and these two the next and kind of go back and pair things up and blah, blah, blah. And then my brother got really sick and he had had leukemia. He had been diagnosed a few years earlier with cancer, how that goes, if it it comes back and it'll go away for a while and then it comes back and then it it comes away a little faster and then it, you know, progresses. And 2019 is when it got really bad and he passed away at the end of February in 2020. I was in Chicago in my hometown with my family for most of that winter and didn't get a lot of writing done. And then, of course, I got back to L.A. at the beginning of March and everything shut down. And I was kind of pleased to not like so lucky there's a pandemic, but like do the like going to birthday parties, going to like social events, whatever, throughout March and April, like of of that year. And so I was like, okay, don't have anything to do. I literally just have to crank this book out. And so I wrote at least half the book in two months, probably more like 
seven weeks. For that, I was just like, I have a word count that I need to hit every day. In the morning, I'm just going to write write out the bulk of that 1,200 words or whatever it was, I think. And then in the afternoon, I'm going to go back and edit stuff from the day before. I just kind of got into like a really immediate groove with it. And I ended up getting it done. And I think that that was just something that really helped in terms of grief and in terms of trying to feel the, you know, hold the reins on my life again. And I don't know, just cope having this really strict and kind of daunting deadline coming up. And so I just kind of cranked it out. And it felt really good to be in the groove of it. And I honestly think that like, in the entire process of writing this book, that was my favorite part was just like, being deep in it and just having to like hit word counts and just really getting into the writing process. Everything else like promotion and like doing all like the press tour, like whatever was like not my jam, <laughs> but like actually writing on it, I, I really loved doing. I really rely on friends of mine to give me notes. I think that that is the most helpful thing. If there's anything that I think has really improved about my craft over the past few years is just how much more comfortable I am with people giving me notes. I am so unprecious about it at this point, especially I'm definitely more precious about getting criticism once it's done <laughs> or more, you know, like sensitive to that because I'm like final product. But if something is like an early draft, I'm like, read it, tear it to shreds, like tell me what I need to do. I did rely on just like smart friends of mine who just are good writers and editors and have good eye for it to give me feedback. And I have a couple of writing groups that I'm part of. And so that really like when it came to revision, that's what I'm thinking about in terms of revision for myself for the draft that I finished before I turned it into my editor. Yeah, with my editor, I, I guess I was just like, I don't know. It was just, I just don't think I had really like, <laughs> this was my first book. I had just like never been a, in a position where somebody was like just waist deep in my work before. And that was so humbling almost. And just, I don't know, it almost reminded me of being in school and having someone who was like, I don't know that my editor Sylvan Creekmore at St. Martin's Press. I, I don't know that she was like a teacher to me, but like, it just felt like having this attentiveness, like somebody who was like really attentive to what I was doing and wanting to help me create the best product possible. I was like, oh, what's this now? Like I have somebody who wants to help me. I almost felt like a kid doing it, which was nice. The difference fundamentally between nonfiction and fiction in terms of putting your book together is that for fiction, you're going to write the full manuscript, you're going to write the full novel. And for nonfiction, you just write a book proposal. Whatever it is that you write, you are then going to pitch around to agents. And when you find an agent who wants to work with you, they're the ones who are going to pitch it to editors. There's that big difference in what you have to do on spec, what you have to do that you're, you're not getting paid for. And for nonfiction, you're going to get part of your advance when you sign your book deal. So you're going to actually be getting paid to write the bulk of your book, which is uh, not the case for novel writing. I was really lucky. I had worked hard before my agent, Tim Wojcik, before we started working together. But basically, it was in fall of 2018. I had a piece that ran in Outside Magazine. It was online. That was about my, I think it's called like my queer bromance with my personal trainer. And I just had this very funny, weird lesbian trainer who I became like obsessed with in this very like big brother way to her. And like, she definitely like looked up to me. It was just like, 
a very fun relationship. And I really liked her a lot. Anyway, so I wrote about that for Outside and he had read that. And then he dug around and found some other stuff I had written online. And at that point, I had contributed to Reductress for a long time and The Onion and written stuff for like BuzzFeed and I think like Eater and maybe The Cut or something like that was a period where I was like writing online much more than I am now. So my agent, Tim Wojcik from Levine Greenberg, Roston, got in touch with me and was like, if you are interested in writing a book, I would love to talk with you. And I was like, yes, I'm interested in writing a book. So I feel like I have a hard time giving people advice on how to do the whole agent thing because I just really got the luckiest thing and just like had somebody who was like just smart and liked my writing and wanted to work with me. I at that point was also like extremely just had no idea what a book proposal was or how to how to do it. Tim helped me with that. But basically, it's a really detailed outline of your nonfiction book. I think it's like the first page is something like, here's who I am. Here's my deal. The next is like, here's what this book would be, why my voice is right for it, like why I'm the only person who could write it, kind of like an an overview of what the project is generally. And then, as I mentioned before, I had three essays just as samples of what would be in the book. And those were maybe 15 pages each or something. And then I wrote a one-page summary for each additional essay. That was an additional like 10 pages of it, single space. So those like took a while to write as much as like, yeah, it's not a full novel. It still takes a long time to to put together if you don't have kind of other samples of that writing, the editors who who would be reading the proposal might be familiar with. And then after that, I had like a page, I think there's like 12 or 13 essays total. I had the three that I had written fully out. And then the other, you know, nine or 10, I had like a page a long single space description of just like what the essay would be about kind of like an extended pitch almost for the essay or it's like an abstract even so yeah it's definitely time consuming again not as time consuming as a novel but it is kind of a pretty hefty packet that you're putting together to show editors hey this is what I'm going to do this is why you should give me this advance up front to then work on the project my agent is wonderful. And I think like part of why he was great was that he really just wanted me to do what I wanted to do. And he's very just, I think you have a great voice. I think that you're a talented writer. Like, let's see what happens. In putting the proposal together, I think he was really more helpful from like a business standpoint of being like, they want to see like this kind of essay might be the better one to, you know, write your sample of, and maybe we should add another one so they can get like a more of a sense of your writing style. So he was really helpful on just like, navigating the industry. The other thing was that, and really the most helpful thing was that he knew that Sylvan, my editor, was looking for a book like mine. And so that's how, you know, he was like, oh yeah, you want to do this kind of book? I know somebody who wants to edit that kind of book. And then I ended up going with Sylvan and, you know, we really went from there because Sylvan is like also queer and also the same age as me. And like, weirdly, we found out that we both went to the same camp when we were kids, but we weren't there at the same time. So there are all these like weird kind of similarities. And I felt like we really work together because we really see things the same way, similar kind of opinion, like similar kinds of entertainment. And so she was really helpful. So Tim was great in that, like, he didn't want to change my voice. And he knew how to connect me with the person who would be right for the project. And that was like, the best thing I think that, you know, an agent or a manager or whatever can do for you. 
So yeah, Tim submitted the proposal and it all actually happened really quickly. It couldn't have been more than like two or three weeks that he was letting editors sit with it because I think that they know pretty quickly if this is a project that's right for them or wrong for them. And there were definitely some editors who were interested, but were like, oh, I'm already working on a project really similar to this. I don't have space for it on my docket right now. A lot of it really comes down to, yes, interest and whether or not they think it's an interesting enough project that's something that they would want to dig into, but also just kind of like logistical stuff with like genuinely don't remember what imprint this was. But there was somebody who like wanted to meet and was like all excited about the project and then like canceled last minute because they were like, oh, I talked to my marketing team about it and they said they wouldn't be able to do it. There's a lot of like random stuff that happens that is really out of your control, which is not terribly surprising. But I was a little surprised in the submission process how much talking to the publicity marketing people, it seemed like from my end, you know, I could be wrong because I obviously don't work in publishing. I would just get little tidbits that made me think like, oh, they're really running this by the publicity people like before they even like agree to take on a meeting for the project, which was interesting. It was stressful. Like I was, you know, of course, spiraling thinking that nobody was going to pick it up and that I had just wasted like half a year working on this proposal. So then when, you know, I did end up going with Sylvan, who was the first person who Tim had thought of when I pitched the book proposal, she was just the person who really got it the most. It was the kind of project that she was looking for. And she really, yeah, seemed to want to highlight my voice and my view on things, which I feel really, really fortunate about. But then of course, when I did get the feel, like it was that thing of like, I had been so anxious during the whole process that like, no one's going to pick it up. And I'm just going to be like, still working on nothing. And like, what am I even doing? And like, I'm turning 30 in two months, like, what am I, you know, obviously like freaking out. So then when I did get the book deal, I was just like, Oh, thank God. At least I'm not as upset as I could be if I didn't get the deal rather than like, this is amazing. I got a book deal. And then that kind of came slowly with time as everything shook out and I really dug into it. But I remember just feeling like at the time I was like, phew, you know, more than elation. I just remember from our initial meeting after the submission, just feeling like she understood the project and what I wanted to accomplish with it. I went to New York a couple months later to visit friends and Sylvan and I got drinks and that was really nice. You know, that was fall 2019. I haven't been back to New York since. So that was the only time that we actually met in person. It was funny, you know, like she just kind of was like pretty hands off, especially in that first chunk, you know, when I was just writing it on my own, it was kind of like, all right, be off and go do your writing. And yeah, if you want to talk through anything, happy to do that. Happy to, you know, puzzle through things with you if that's what you like. But I kind of just was like, no, I really want to just tackle this by myself. We didn't really get in contact again, meaningfully until spring of 2020. In terms of the nuts and bolts of the edits, she was definitely more hands off than I was anticipating with the edits. Like there really weren't very heavy edits. Her edits were like really specific and helpful. But I think I assumed it would be much more of an overhaul than it was. And maybe... I don't know if that's about her editing style. I don't know if that's about like just book editing. I don't know if that's just like I wrote a perfect book and didn't need any edits, which I think has to be the answer. But really what I remember most from that is that she sent me the edits in a Word doc and they had all of like the little like bubbles and like kind of the edit thing was up on the right hand column. And I went through, I don't know what I did. 
but like I didn't track that I was completing the edit suggestions that she made. I'm a Google Docs person. I only knew how to do any of this in Google Docs. I had only done this in Google Docs with people before. And I did something where I wasn't tracking my responses to her edits. And then she was like, um, hey, so just like next time you do this, if you could just turn that on because now I have to do like, you know, five times as much work as I would have before. She didn't say five times as much, but like that was that I was like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I'm like a thousand years old. I am just talking about how I need nine hours of sleep. And, you know, also I don't know how to use Word doc. So that was really the primary thing that stood out to me from the early days. But I guess there were like a lot of rounds of edits. It, it, it wasn't even like they were that deep. It wasn't like a complete overhaul, but I just remember being surprised like, oh God, this is like, this is like, we're going back and forth forever. So it really was, wasn't until maybe late August is when I turned in the draft that was like the locked in, like can't make any more big changes kind of draft. And I also didn't do my end notes until the very end, which was dumb because I was lazy. I don't know what to tell you. I like did links. Like I was like, okay, this goes, I know what I'm linking to and like had like notes on my own end. But then I just like was like, I don't want to look up Chicago manual, how to like cite things like I'm not going to do that. And then of course, like it was absolute hell doing that at the end. So my main piece of advice is if you're writing nonfiction and need to cite sources, just do it as you go. Just really save you a lot of trouble, which of course, I was told when I was like 12. But you know, didn't do that. Getting the book cover predictably was the best part of the whole process. I will happily judge my own book by its cover. No, it was cool. Sylvan sent me a survey or like some questionnaire about like, what do you want your book cover to look like? Like, what are what are other covers that you like that you could see like this working for? And, you know, I said my thing and was like, they probably won't listen to me. But then I was like, oh, they actually really listened to me. This looks great. This really works. So that was super fun. I actually wrote a lot of the jacket copy, which surprised me. I guess I thought marketing, I, I don't know what I thought, but I was like, oh, who writes this? I guess I do. That was all in like the fall 2020 was when I was doing kind of production stuff. And I did also in that period have a call with a lawyer who just goes through and is like, basically was telling me to change names of certain people that like it might seem like incriminating or like whatever. And my references to like teen drug and alcohol use, he was like, this could be libel if you print this because like you are accusing somebody of a crime. And so that was something that we went through all those old things that, you know, I wouldn't, but like St. Martin's would potentially get in trouble for publishing that somebody I went to high school with smoked weed in 2004 or whatever. So that was fun and weird. Trying to think of other stuff from that period. I feel like at that point in the process, it was actually hell because I was done with the book. I couldn't touch the book. The only thing that they were going to change were like typos. Couldn't do any like editing overhaul. But I hadn't gotten any like reviews yet. I was still kind of trying to get blurbs. And that was very stressful to me because I just hate asking people for things. And so asking people who I knew like professionally to be like, can you say nice things about my work was very stressful. It was like the period between the book being locked and then getting like a trade review and just being like, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> like that was like my thought process in that like without having any positive feedback was from any like critics or anything was just like, I'm the biggest idiot on the planet. I shouldn't have written a book. What have I done here? Like I it was just treading water. It was just like toiling. And then of course, this was COVID winter before anyone was vaccinated. So I was just losing my mind. And then I got a trade review and it was positive and I was like okay okay 
Okay, this is fine. I think I did something good here. Okay. I didn't even like when I got the books in the mail, I was like, I don't want to look at those. (laughs) I was like, this is horrible. Like nobody should have sent me this. Like I hate that this exists. Yeah. In terms of the book actually coming out, it came out in June 1st, 2021. That was in kind of that weird period of like, people are vaccinated and it's pre-Delta. So people were like, yeah, the pandemic's over. We're like going out again. Were we ever so young? But there's book events still weren't happening in person. So my whole like book tour, I did like five events that were all on Zoom, which was totally fun and went great. And like I had, you know, was in conversation with different writers and friends of mine. And, and that was really fun. But I, you know, I'm hoping for the next book, it'll be, I think it'll be more fun to be able to do it in person and actually go and visit different cities and do the whole thing. And then I did some podcasts. And so that felt like it was all, you know, a part of it. I just remember feeling like by the end of the couple weeks, like the first couple weeks after it came out, because that's when I was like doing a lot of talking about it and doing a lot of like, da da da, that I just like, sat in the dark in my room and was like, I don't want to talk to anyone about my book ever again, was just so exhausted by it. And now I'm, you know, I, I, I just needed a little bit of time to bounce back. But yeah, I mean, it was June of 2021. We thought the pandemic was over. So I, you know, had friends over for like a little celebration party. Then I was like, well, it's out. Like, now what do I do? <laughs> like, and it was just, okay, I guess I have to figure out how to write something else or something been fun I do certainly definitely get a kick out of seeing it at bookstores like that is just like the most fun thing imaginable it's like a weird thing of knowing that the book is really personal right and it's a lot of just what was going on in my brain as a closeted 18 year old which I don't feel very I just feel like I'm a different person than I was uh, you know in terms of the person who I write about in the book it's me, but it doesn't really feel like me right now in the same way. So I do have some emotional distance from that. And it's also at this point, I've like written about it. And I just like don't feel precious about it anymore. But like, I'm not gonna lie, like it was weird. I had a realization like at Christmas this year, you know, talking to my aunts about my book being like, weird that they know how I lost my virginity. Oh, well, like, I <laughs> and like, that's just what it's like having nonfiction exists in the world, you just kind of have to put some a little bit of distance from it and know that it's okay for different people to have different opinions about what you've done and what you've written. And that's kind of it, I guess. I feel like when after the book came out, it was just kind of like, well, it's in the world now. And there's nothing I can do about it. And that's just something I have to live with for life now. And that's kind of it. It's sort of a chicken or the egg with me because it's like, did you decide to write about Katy Perry? Like, like, which did the moment come first? Or did the piece of entertainment come first? And I think like different things for different essays. I think it was mostly that I kind of had like a list and maybe I didn't like literally physically do this, but sort of in my head had a list of here's like the teen pop culture that I want to write about. Some of them had more specific queer or like lesbian like plot lines or themes that I was like, Oh, well, I have to write about that. And they all had to come out within from 2000 to 2009. That was my only like real, like, I was like, okay, I'm really doing 2000s here. So there were some on that that I was like, well, obviously, I have to write about I kissed a girl like that's like, I can't not and and I'm gonna write about the L word. And like, I really wanted to write about best in show. That was the only one that was like, feels like a little bit random, because it's not really like a super popular, like teen piece of pop culture. But I was like, well, it was important to me. So I'm writing about it. And then on the other column, so if so I have that list on one column, and then I have my list of like, here are like, 
the gay things that happened to me <laughs> in the 2000s. And like, because I was in the closet for most of it, and like so much of the book is like high school, college, there is a finite number of of moments, <laughs> honestly, because I was so like not letting my brain go there when I was in the closet. And so my life, I had really like segmented that part of my life in a way that made it so picking out the moments was not terribly challenging. And I think also there's like one of the benefits of writing memoir is that it's writing about things that happened 10, 15 years ago, right? And so at a certain point, there's only so many things I'm going to remember. <laughs> and I'm, and those are the things that I'm going to write about. And sometimes they have meaning in them. And sometimes they don't. I had those two columns and just sort of matched like, okay, yeah, I think that like, the feelings about how I felt weird wearing girls feminine clothes in like sixth, seventh grade that can I can talk about that in terms of Disney Channel movies, or I can talk about it in relation to like the real world, like I could kind of see them fitting with each other in different ways. And then I just sort of went with what, what worked the best what sounded the best and what what felt right. My writing advice is if you have something, I think a good place to start is if you can recently think about something that you were like excitedly rambling about to a friend of yours, that might be something that you should write about. And that could be something that is, you know, maybe it's political, maybe it's about pop culture, maybe it's about somebody in your life who you think was acting like an idiot. Write about things that naturally you are curious about and that like get you riled up. And that is always going to be a good jumping off point. And now a reading from The 2000s Made Me Gay. All right, this is an excerpt from The Gospel According to Mean Girls. Going into freshman year, I half expected high school to be like Mean Girls. I told a church full of my classmates and their families. It got a laugh. Tina Fey's high school comedy had come out four years earlier at the end of eighth grade. And even then, in May of my senior year of high school, the movie had years to go before it became a classic and before Mean Girls Day jokes each October 3rd would strip the film of any cool factor. It was just niche enough a pop culture reference, and I nailed it. I was giving a speech at our baccalaureate mass, a senior class service on the eve of our high school graduation. This moment was the peak of my personal Catholic faith. It would all cascade downhill from there. I'd just completed four years at a Jesuit high school. We called it FAM, and I regret to report that we called its regular participants the FAM FAM, asked me to give a speech reflecting on my time in high school in the context of my faith. I talked about getting to know my true self, and getting to know God, and being, quote, fortunate enough to be called to lead Kairos, and, quote, praying and reflecting on my service work. Our school's church was so ugly we called it Catholic Disneyland. Life-size statues of the saints peered down at parishioners, their robes painted vibrant blues and pastel pink, their complexions distinctly European. And behind the altar, big, bright, exposed light bulbs dotted the app as if it were a vanity, making the parishioners Judy Garland prepping for our close-up, and Jesus our sleazeball manager alternately feeding us speed and sleeping pills. Pontificating from the pulpit, I was the very closeted poster girl for Jesuit education. I saw Mean Girls in a packed movie theater. My friend Nora and I went to the Biograph on Lincoln Avenue, back when the Biograph still screened movies. We walked back to my house, cackling and quoting the plastics, and then we immediately watched Lindsay Lohan on Saturday Night Live. That episode, May 1st, 2004, was best known for the inaugural Debbie Downer sketch, though I best recall it as the one where Lindsay Lohan plays Hermione Granger with gigantic boobs. Hmm. As Nora and I shrieked with laughter in my basement, 
I knew I'd fallen in love with Mean Girls and perhaps with Lohan too. I liked the cadence of the jokes in Mean Girls, the surprising lyricism of the phrase heavy flow in a wide set vagina, the way Karen Smith yearns to mack on her cousin, Seth Mosikowski rolls off her tongue, the uniquely high school catchiness of the words the projection room above the auditorium. It has a unique tempo marked by a tender heart interwoven with gentle digs at the genre. You know, it's not really required of you to make a speech, Tim Meadows' Principal Duval interjects during Katie's sentimental spring fling address. When I watch Mean Girls now, it's like revisiting an old album I've worn to death. Scratches be damned. I get chills with the honeyed way Regina asks the newest plastic, Katie, will you please tell Aaron his hair looks sexy pushed back, and her equally evil but cool, because that vest was disgusting. The humor sounds like music to me. Mean Girls made me feel seen and my securities understood. In content, yes, but mostly in phase writing, which treated teenagers how they really are, smarter than they look. Mean Girls doesn't talk down to kids, neither in how it treats teen girl drama as genuinely hurtful and lasting, nor its jokes. It hit me right at the perfect age, 14. I'd had enough health class to know that chlamydia doesn't start with a K, but lacked the life experience to have any idea what butter your muffin means. I was familiar with the cringy trope of cool moms, sure, but I had to laugh along with what are marijuana pills in order to not look like an absolute dweeb. The jokes felt a step out of my age bracket, and I loved that challenge. Nothing makes a joke funnier than getting it, despite it being intended for someone smarter than you, nor more satisfying than that smugness. It was the humor more than the story itself that made Mean Girls feel so personal to me. Despite an obscene number of Mean Girls viewings, only as an adult did I register the movie's most brutal insult is a homophobic one. Janice Ian, Dyke. It's written in the burn book and photocopied for the whole school to see. The big offensive thing here in the world of Mean Girls isn't that the plastics use a gay slur. The mean thing the plastics do is call Janice a lesbian. It's more than that, though. In eighth grade, Regina started a rumor that Janice was gay, which ostracized Janice at school and prompted the end of their friendship. I couldn't invite her to a pool party. There were going to be girls there in their bathing suits, Regina says explaining the roots of their years-old feud. I mean, right, she was a lesbian. It's posited as a reasonable prompt for Janice's unbridled hatred of Regina, and is even perceived as degrading to, quote, too gay to function Damien. When Katie takes a page out of Regina's book and accuses Janice of being in love with her, he slams on the brakes and urgently defends her friend. Oh, no, she did not. Knowing Katie had cut Janice where it hurt most. In Mean Girls, calling someone a lesbian is treated as an insult unto itself. It's the worst version of Grotsky Little Biatch. It's simply an insult, a bad insult, an insult cruel enough to tear apart a friendship, to incite a year-long revenge plot and a burning urge to fully destroy the girl who made that claim. No one likes to be misrepresented, sure, but the fact that being called a lesbian is an insult is, well, pretty insulting to lesbians. One could argue that the movie isn't trying to be homophobic, that Regina's the homophobic one, that the writing mimics the casual homophobia teens used in the mid-aughts. And yes, it would be natural for self-conscious teen girls to revolt at being called a lesbian. I mean, I know I did. And all that might be true. But the writing certainly doesn't stick up for queer women either. Despite Janet wearing a purple tux to spring fling, Faye is sure to disprove Regina's allegation in the final scene, as Janice makes out with Kevin G in pure, blissed-out heterosexuality. After upwards of 75 viewings of Mean Girls in 2004, I internalized the idea that, like Regina argued, lesbians shouldn't be allowed to go to pool parties with straight girls. I worshipped the movie, and Faye too. 
And so a subtle but disappointed narrative nestled into a corner of my brain for years after 2004. It's cool for guys to be gay. It's cool for girls to be friends with gay guys, but it's an insult to be called a lesbian. Or as Liz Lemon puts it in a 30 Rock episode, my boyfriend and I aren't married, but we might have a baby together anyway. And I hope it's gay, male gay, because with the ladies, it's too much hiking. To be fair, that's not untrue. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.